and welcome to the Kane County Bar Association's On the Bar podcast. I am your host, immediate past president, Andrew Whitfield, and this is episode four with Assistant State's Attorney Mark Stadahar with the Kane County State's Attorney's Office. Mark and I have gone back a long way since I initially started in the Kane County State's Attorney's Office back in 2007. Again, we had the same uh, uh, share of uh, similar likes in music and bands, and he always had great stories um, prior to him becoming um, an attorney, uh, most of which uh, consists of his time serving in the Army um, here in the United States and also in Germany as a military police officer and undercover investigator doing drug investigations. In addition, um, he also discusses his time at the well-known um, Thirsty Whale um, music venue out in River Grove, Illinois, which is uh, a subject him and I always talked about as far as legendary metal and hard rock bands that he got to see while he worked as a bouncer and a sound engineer and working the bar um, at the Thirsty Whale. Um, You'll also hear his story about how he went to ISU for undergrad and Duke for law school and some of his internships and time spent in D.C. and even a story about the basketball court that sits above the United States Supreme Court and the fact that Mark, upon completing um, his time in D.C., came back here and started in the Kane County State's Attorney's Office uh, back in 2000, where he's been since. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Okay, we're here with episode four of the Kane County Bar Association podcast with Assistant State's Attorney Mark Stadahar from the Kane County State's Attorney's Office. Mark, thank you for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, we're going to talk about um, you know your life before becoming a, a prosecutor and an attorney and going to law school. I think you've always had an interesting story to tell back when I was in the Kane County State's Attorney's Office and even prepping this was kind of fun. Um so my understanding was, and you're a former Naperville person too, except you were at the crosstown rival Naperville North, right? Correct. I was at the better school. Oh, okay. I was a Naperville Central person. We were just talking about this. Uh, Bob Odenkirk apparently went to Naperville North uh, High School too, but you, you said he was about two years ahead of you? I believe he was class of 80. I was class of 82. Got it. And you said you recognized him. You were watching Breaking Bad, and then you realized, like, where do I know this person? And then I kept asking where I'd seen him before, what show I had watched. And finally, I saw on Wikipedia that he was two years ahead of me in high school. And I said, that's the only place I could have possibly recognized him from. <laughs> that's hilarious. I kind of figured I, I meant to ask that the other day, and then it just popped. I figured I'd ask you today about that. So um, going into it, um, now we've talked about this. You. Started off at Northern Illinois University, correct, after high school? I did go uh, straight to Northern for one semester. Uh, I was not uh, successful. I was not ready for college (laughs) at that point. And it was at that point when the first semester was over that I decided I would join the Army. Okay, and what were some of the things that you did with the Army? And you've definitely got an interesting story as far as, you know, my opinion of it. Well, I did uh, start at uh, Anniston, Alabama for my basic training, and I was an MP, a military police officer. After I completed that, we went. I went to uh, White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, which was uh, kind of a different task for a police officer because mainly they were firing missiles into the desert there, and my platoon, my job was to block off the roads into the hot area 
where the missile was being fired and also to uh, evacuate the area, make sure that people were at the right sites, the only authorized sites when the missile was being fired. And how long were you doing that for? I did that for about 11 months. Uh, I then went temporary duty to Denver, Colorado for three months working at Rocky Mountain Arsenal. They just needed supplemental guard force. So that was nice. Also, I worked uh, October through December. So it was five days a week at work, eight hours a day. And then it was two days skiing up in the mountains. So it was beautiful. Nice. I mean, did you see anything like cool with the going back to White Sands? Any of the with the uh, explosions, anything stick out on that? I always enjoyed watching the missile firings. When we finished, uh, we always stayed and watched whatever was being fired. They fired a lot of the anti-aircraft missiles, which was always neat. Uh, One missile in particular was a Stinger missile, and apparently it took a jink towards my truck, and they blew it up. (laughs) They didn't think it was going to hit my truck, but I was too close to that. I had just cleared the hot zone, and I was too close to the infrared tower that they were shooting at, and they said it took a little right turn, so they decided to blow it up immediately. <laughs> nice. That, that, that's something else. Now, you had also, I know, as part of being an MP, you were stationed for a time over in Germany, correct? Correct. Once I uh, got back to White Sands Missile Range, then I went to uh, Ansbach, which was the Federal Republic of Germany at that time, West Germany, uh, and I was uh, working on an undercover drug team for 18 months there. And how long, um, what kind of training did you have to become to do that well initially uh when i got off the plane they asked me if i could tell the difference between uh cannabis and uh tomato plants and i said i probably can uh which is an interesting answer to a cid officer the investigative division uh, of the military uh and at that point then a lot of it was on the job training from your partners Uh, i had i was on a team of four people and the three people I was working with were very experienced, so much on-the-job training, and then we had monthly trainings, and I also went to military police investigator school while I was in Germany, so that was a week-long training. Got uh, it. Now, when you're doing that as an MP with undercover drug investigations, are you buying or, or targeting people that, I guess, are in the Army or in the military selling to people on base, or is this also German citizens that are selling to people? How, how did that work out, typically? Our goal was the military personnel. Uh, that was our job. That was our description. We obviously had a lot of bleed over with the German police and the German citizens, so we worked closely with the uh, criminal division of the Ansbach uh, Criminal Polizei, and we did a lot of operations with them where our person would lead to one of their people or one of their people would lead to some of our people. So, Got it. Now, was it how, how hard was the language barrier for you? I think you had some uh, school in, or, you know, in German in, in high school we talked about that. I did. At Naperville North, I had taken two years of German, so I knew some German. I would say in no way was I proficient. Uh, my partner was married to a German girl and had spent many years in Germany, so he was fluent in uh, German. So most of the time, if we were working with German personnel, he would speak German to them, and I would pretend that I was an American <laughs> married to a service person because I had long hair and a beard. Nice. Uh, so I would pretend I was married to a, a service person and didn't speak any German at all. But I would pick up parts of the conversation, so it was interesting. I see. I wanted to take German. I was originally thinking about that in high school. My parents were like, no, that, that's a little too difficult. Maybe Spanish would be better for you. I remember having conversations 
about that, but that's 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 cool. And as far as with the German system versus the United States, I guess criminal justice system, what would what would you say is I guess the biggest difference between the two? The biggest difference that I noticed are the German police have quite a bit more power with their citizens that, than we have as uh, service members or as the whole uh, U.S. justice system. The Constitution provides far more protections for citizens than uh, the German citizens are afforded. Now, I don't recall, I mean, again, you know, each country is kind of different. Do they have, can people have a jury trial or is it just strictly, you know, bench or... They, heard by a judge. I, that's what I wasn't 100% sure I get a chance to look into that. They do have jury trials. Uh, we, we had very little uh, interaction with the German justice system because everything we did, everything we did with the uh, justice system, the German police were involved also. So they were usually called as the witnesses when uh, anything went to trial or hearing. Um, whereas we did much of our work testifying in the military system under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Oh, nice. I had a professor who did that. I helped out at the UCMG doing a treatise and citing case law. And I remember it's been a while since that. And I know we've also talked about Article 32 hearings. So is that what you kind of had a focus on or was that later on? Article 32 hearings are more akin to preliminary hearings. They are findings for a commander whether there's enough to take a case to trial. Then you would testify at a court-martial hearing, but there were so many uh, Article 32 hearings, which in effect were very near a trial, uh, and you were cross-examined, and there were uh, other attorneys from both sides there. But uh, the trials themselves, there were so few because very few people could challenge the fact that myself, I bought the drugs from somebody and there were four people on surveillance with me. So there was very little challenging, especially within the military system, whether the person had committed the offense. Yeah, it's always easier when you actually have an undercover person as opposed to a transactional confidential informant. That certainly makes life easier in those types of cases, as you and I know. And for people out there with you know, dealing with confidential informants, there's always some sort of bias or interest as far as they have a pending case and why they are doing that. But when you have somebody that's just, you know, an investigator or an officer, they do that for a living, you don't have those issues. So, um, and how long were you in Germany for? I was in Germany for 18 months. Okay. And at some point, did you go back, come back home to the United States approximately Right after that, or correct, I I left Germany in February of '86 and came home, and uh, that was when my three years had expired. Got it. Now, when you were back home, we had conversations about this, and even a lot of conversations in the past, because you know, being into you know heavy metal and hard rock, uh, you worked at a place, famous place for those who don't know. The Thirsty Whale and River Grove, right? That's correct. It was the premier heavy metal hard rock bar in, I would call it the eastern half of the United States. There was always one in Los Angeles that was the number one ranked uh, metal or hard rock bar, and we were always number two. Yeah, so that was kind of like the you know CBGBs I know in New York, and then you got the 
well, the Viper Room in L.A. I think that was more of a place to hang out. I don't know if that was necessarily was a the, venue. The Rainbow, say. the Rainbow. Where yeah, that's what. It, yeah, was always the number one rock club. Yeah, and Lemmy from Motorhead was always hanging out there, and I think he even has a has a statue. So, how long were you at at the Whale, and what did you do there? Uh, I started out as a monitor technician. So when a band plays, they have their monitors that play the music back to them so they can hear their fellow band members, and uh, one person works that system. I did that for a while. Then I moved into a role as a bouncer, uh, in which I was, of course, the smallest bouncer, and I was a you know six foot, about 200 pounds, but everybody dwarfed me that I bounced with. And uh, shortly after that, I moved into bartending and did that on and off for about 10 years. All right, so I can only imagine the amount of shows that you saw there. I, we were talking about this in the, I think it was mid-late 90s. I was either late junior high or early high school, and they would always have either all-ages shows and then a 21-plus, and we would call invariably if there were bands we wanted to see you know, that would come through there because it was such a popular metal club, um, and we would normally be told, yeah, that's not an all-ages show, you can't come. I never actually got to go, but I heard a lot of great stories. So um, in talking about this, do you have a show that stands out in your mind that was the best show that you saw uh, when you were working there? Uh, There's a couple. I'm going to say Grim Reaper and Armored Saint. Uh, They were supposed to play at the Avalon or one of the downtown clubs that held three, 4,000 people. And they had a electrical issue, so right the day of the show, they transferred the show to our club, and we were all called in as early as we could get there. And I spent the whole show on the stage. We had a very small stage with no uh, barrier between the crowd and the bands, so I spent the whole time on the stage with both bands, uh, pushing people off the stage as they tried to get on the stage and stave dive and uh, get towards the band. That was our job that day. Yeah, and, and looking back on that now, I, you see all these old videos on YouTube. You know, you wish you had a time machine, or at least I wish I had a time machine, comparatively speaking. Shows these days, metal and hard rock shows, seem to be a lot more tame. You don't, you don't see people jumping off stage anymore. Obviously, there's more barriers. Or, you know, we're a litigious society, but it looked rather crazy. <laughs> Back then, I've I've seen people from the Slayer shows from like '86 getting power bombed back into the crowd, so I can only imagine what that was like. And you know, Armored Saints a great band. They've actually played Arcada with Wasp, and I regret not getting tickets to go see them. They played two sold out shows over here, and that's a little obviously a little more of an intimate setting. But John Bush. One of the best vocalists in metal, who's underappreciated, whose voice hasn't gone to complete hell at this <laughs> stage in his career. So I'm, 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 I'm jealous that you got to see Armored Satan, you know, the Grim Reaper there with Steve Grimmett, who, you know, unfortunately he recently passed away. But you know, that's a that's a, a great band as well. Now, would you also consider that, you know, I imagine that's Pack. Would you consider that the craziest show, or as far as like just, you know. I think a wildness standpoint. There were certainly some harder bands that the shows got crazier where you would clear out the front of the stage area after the show was over and you'd find chunks of people's hair. You'd find (laughs) the mosh pits were there and moshing was very prevalent at the time. So uh, things got really crazy. A lot of people, you know, bleeding from moshing and getting smashed into 
people who went crazier. Um, but we certainly had some exciting events. Uh, Warrant played there on a Sunday night, and we had, I want to say, 2,000 people. I'm a little hesitant wow. to say yeah. that our, our fire code probably <laughs> said six or 700, <laughs> but we had 2,000 people there. And you literally, uh, unless you were in a back room, you could not move. There were that many people in, and we wouldn't let any more people in. And at some point we said if one person leaves, one person could come in. But yeah. that show was crazy. The uh, Man of War played there a bunch of times. Nice. And if you don't know Man of War, they at one time were in the Guinness Book of World Records as the loudest band in the world. Oh, they, definitely. I they played at uh, Aurora's Riley Rock, Riley's Rock House for people out there may be familiar with over there on Lake Street by the Dairy Queen. And... During the dark days of metal and hard rock, I remember they brought in their own sound system. I'm like, it took up half the floor. I'm like, where, where are the people going to go because of they're well known for being the loudest? Them and Motorhead, you know, blow your ears out even with the, you know, the earplugs in. So that's always, you know, quite the experience there when you <laughs> with a band like that. So that that that's great you know as far as i, I i'm insanely jealous i keep thinking of uh, that movie napoleon dynamite with uncle rico's time machine i joke around <laughs> wanting to go back in time to see some of those shows especially slayer slayer in the mid 80s around that time i can only imagine there's the uh, ultimate revenge tour uh, if people want to see a good glimpse of this with venom and exodus and again you you you, you were there you know, right in the front row, basically working there at the whale. So, and I know we've talked about this at some point. I, I know it's changed either hands or locations, but again, the the original Thirsty Whale that was in River Grove, correct, right at the corner of Grand and River, uh, and it closed in '96. If you drive by there now, you will find a McDonald's Amico, and it's still next door to Gene and Jude's, one of the most famous hot dog stands. Yes. Right next door. I didn't realize it was there. I was there actually with my coworker there because we were at Triton College, and I I had Gene and Jude's. That was actually the first time, and I've lived out here for thirty years at this point. But I didn't realize the whale was right there, you know, because again I was so young, and you know it was after the whale had closed. I started getting my parents to take us to uh, for birthday parties to go to heavy metal shows with my friends from high school. But anyway, I digress. Um, now at some point. You decide that you you went back to college uh, at some point, correct, after working at the Whale? Correct. I, I started at the Whale in 87, and through 87 through 91, I was at Illinois State, uh, and I got a degree in political science there, knowing I was headed at some point to be a prosecutor. And did you w- realize you wanted to be a prosecutor back when you were stationed in Germany, you know, doing your MP work? Was, was that something along like, hey, I think I, this is what I want to do down the line? It was when uh, I think it was probably the first time I testified in a trial uh, and I watched our prosecutor in action. He uh, and I said that that really looks like the job I'd rather do. Got it. So at some point after ISU, um, you then apply for law school. And where did you end up going to law school? I went to Duke uh, from 1997 to 2000. And what made you settle on Duke? I had looked at some of the law schools that had the best clinical programs, and going to Duke, uh, I was down to Duke in Michigan, and Duke said yes first, so that's where I went, but they had two good clinical programs, which allowed me to prosecute as a 3L, and I did spend a semester 
uh, as a prosecutor doing mostly domestic violence trials in North Carolina. And did you do other internships uh, afterwards or as far as after your time at Duke? I did. Well, during my time at Duke, I was, uh, after my first year, I worked at the the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in Washington, D.C. Nice. Uh, My small section professor used to be the chief uh, judge back when it was the Court of Military Appeals, and they changed the name to Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. So he was the chief judge up there. He still sat occasionally as a senior judge when one of the judges wasn't available, but I did do an internship there, and it's all military law. It's all criminal, so it was very interesting to me. Nice. And I, we were talking about this, and because it was in D.C., there were, we, we, we had some conversation about the United States Supreme Court, and was that either in the same building or close by? It was fairly close uh, down the road a piece, but uh, the fact that my small section professor used to be the chief judge of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, he was friends with the uh, clerk of the Supreme Court of the United States. They had uh, the clerk of the Supreme Court of the United States used to be the judge advocate general in the army. He was a two-star general. So they knew each other very well, and they were friends, and that allowed me to go watch some Supreme Court arguments, but it also got me to actually participate in the highest court in the land. And how did you participate? Well, the highest court in the land is not the United States Supreme Court. It is actually a basketball court on the fifth floor of the United States Supreme Court building and uh, got to play in a couple games up there. So because it's it's above the United States Supreme Court, it is considered the highest court in the land. <laughs> and when we were talking about this, I, I absolutely had no idea that there was a basketball court in that building. That that's that just kind of seems crazy to me. I never because I know people have gone on tours, you know, through the Bar Association. I know SIU was offering that and then I heard about this from you and I was like, wait a minute, I've never heard of this. And we were ta- you were talking telling me about the ceilings. If you want to describe the ceilings of this basketball court. They're very, very low. I wanna guess I would estimate somewhere between 15 or 20 feet, and if, as everybody knows, a basketball hoop is 10 feet, so you really have to shoot line drives. <laughs> you can't shoot a shot with arc on it. It's either a layup or a line drive shot, so it's a very interesting court to play on. I can only imagine. <laughs> when I was there, and we played with uh, a lot of the clerks, the clerks from my courthouse and clerks from the Supreme Court, uh, we didn't get to play with any of the justices, but I believe Justice Rehnquist is uh, one who used to play a lot. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was anybody that stood out that you knew as far as any Supreme Court justices that would go and play. Didn't run, in, run into him on the basketball court. I did, uh, through uh, William Souter, who was the clerk, we did get to do a couple uh, really behind-the-scenes uh, tours. I did get to sit in Justice Scalia's chair, uh, which nice. was the highlight of yeah, no, that's awesome. to me. Uh, <laughs> anybody who doesn't know, they also have uh, spittoons at each of the... Really? Uh, each of the Supreme <laughs> Courts, they don't use them as spittoons anymore, but they are, I want to say brass. I don't remember if they were brass, but uh, they use them now as garbage cans. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, you can see that. That's, that's, that's hilarious. So moving on, so after D.C. and Duke, you, you eventually come back here, obviously. Correct. And what, what did you do upon coming back to Illinois? I immediately came to work for the Kane County State's Attorney's Office. I had uh, put in some letters after my first year, I uh, had a meeting with John Barsanti, who was the first assistant at the time, 
and had a very nice conversation with him. He had said I could work there for the summer if I wanted to, but they couldn't pay me, so I opted to go out to Leavenworth, Kansas, and work for the, uh, the Army and get paid for it. Uh, but when I came back, I looked up uh, now Judge Barsani and uh, had a very nice interview with him, a very short interview, and he hired me at a time where the office had a massive massive loss of people based on some election things that were going on in the year 2000. Yeah, I remember going through that. You know, it's at least in 2007 I interned with Cook County State's Attorney's Office. I made it all through the interviews and then they cut people in half because of the budget issues and then you know, I had also uh, interviewed with the state's attorney's office with Judge Hall at the time who was the first assistant like, you know, similar to what you just explained and you know, trying to, you know, get something set up and I was very fortunate uh you know, to be hired, you know, right out of law school or, you know, at least take the bar exam and wait for the results. I was very appreciative about that because that was certainly a hard time, you know, to find a job, you know, for years, you know, when Cook County would hire, my understanding would be 40 people, you know, in a given class, and then they slashed it Uh. to 20, and I was a Bridgeview intern as opposed to a 26. I always think they gave sort of some sort of deference to the people at 26th Street because I think you were more in it. So, but at, at a similar situation. And how long? So that was in that was in 2000. Correct. Okay. So you've been there since, and I know you've done. I can't even begin to fathom. I, you you've done a ton of murder trials and everything under the gambit. I have done quite a wide variety of trials. I've worked on quite a wide variety of cases. I think I'm at about 20 murder trials right now that I've either been the first chair or the second chair in. That's great. Now, and we've obviously picked each other's brains, probably me more than you as far as issues and as far as you know, talking about various aspects of the law. And I've, I've certainly appreciated your wisdom over the years and as far as your excellence in being a trial attorney and a, and a, and a, and a hardcore prosecutor like myself. so And I've appreciated your input <laughs> and I've certainly appreciated your uh, knowledge also. And I know we, 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 we joke around a lot as far as me being a quitter and going to the attorney general's office, but I always appreciate coming back and talking with you and everybody else. And you know, it's always a highlight coming back to the state's attorney's office and the courtrooms there. So, you know, on behalf of the King County Bar Association, I'd like to, you know, thank you for being, you know, for doing what you do and coming in and, you know, telling us your story. So, again, Mark, thanks for, for coming in today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thanks.